Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart, a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hello, I'm Natasha Livingston, Royal Correspondent for The Mail on Sunday. Welcome to The Crown, Fact or Fiction? This is the podcast where we put royal experts on the sofa, turn on the crown, and tell you if what you're seeing is how things really happened. I'm joined on this and every episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction by Robert Hardman, royal biographer and male columnist. Hello, Natasha. I'm really looking forward to this episode, actually. I don't often say that about The Crown, but um, I've been given a heads up, and we do watch these in chronological order. We don't binge watch the whole series and then come back to it. But I am led to believe that this one is going to touch on what I regard as one of the most fascinating days in the life of the Queen. That was uh, VE Day, the end of the Second World War something I've written about quite extensively in my book. So I am looking forward to seeing how The Crown deals with that. I'm sure there'll be plenty of fiction, but there can be no doubt there was a fact. May the 8th, 1945, was the end of the war in Europe. So they must have got that bit right. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> As always, spoilers are ahead. And with that said, here comes Ritz, episode eight of season six of The Crown. Hostilities will end tonight, Tuesday the 8th of May. Margaret, next week is May the 8th. Do you know, it's been over 50 years and we've never done anything to commemorate it. What are you talking about? I attend VE Day celebrations every year. I mean, our VE Day. We almost lost you. And then we very much found you. The real you. So there we've had the opening sequence of this episode, and it begins with Princess Margaret just thinking back to 
an extraordinary evening, May the 8th, 1945, and she's recalling the night that, as we know, the young princesses went out into the crowds. The episode opens with a, a young Margaret rushing through the palace and looking out through the net curtains and seeing the crowds and thinking, yeah, this is it. We're, we're finally, we're going we're to go out and join the crowds. This is going to be amazing. And you've got a very, as ever, very responsible Lilibet saying, oh, I don't know, oh, I'm not sure about that. Little bits there slightly annoy me, Natasha. I mean, you've got the palace all looking very shiny and everything's sort of, you know, the windows are sort of sparkling and, and it just wouldn't have been like that. The whole thing was grimy. There were tape all over the windows. Rule number one at the palace, you never part the neck curtains. I think we can forgive them those details. I think the idea that the Queen was against going out and joining the crowds simply not true. And what's being built up here is the idea that there's some sort of dark secret about this evening that the Queen has forever been trying to bury. Margaret sort of nudges her and says, oh, that's, you know, that's the night we saw the real you. And the Queen goes, oh, we've sworn never to discuss that. Um, Again, yeah, all right. I can see what's coming. There's going to be some sort of embarrassing behaviour. All I can say is if the evening had to be consigned to secrecy and the Queen never wanted it discussed again, it was very odd that in one of the only interviews in her entire life in 1985, she actually discussed that evening and called it one of the most memorable nights of my life. So I'm not sure in real life it was a cause for regret. What were your thoughts on the, the sort of the dynamic between the two sisters there? It was quite sweet, wasn't it? Yeah, I love seeing the young Queen. I think that was always the best bits of the crown just seeing her young and full of life even though she's still portrayed as you say is very kind of reticent and you know it's that dynamic of Margaret being the one that's kind of pushing her to you know have some fun live a little we've got a kind of fourth young queen here which I think is a sort of unexpected surprise so yeah I, I I like this well, we ended on V-Day and we're transported back to the present with Princess Margaret on her way to her favourite holiday destination, Mustique. Green with lust and sick with shyness. Let me lick your lacquered toes. Gosh, oh gosh, your royal highness. Put your finger <laughs> up my nose. <laughs> So we've just seen the second part of the opening scene. It opens with a tiny propeller plane flying over a bright blue ocean. We see Margaret walking barefoot in the sea. She's looking sunkissed. She's having a great time. Um, this is Mystique, which, as Robert said before, is her favourite holiday destination. And then we see her entertaining guests at a party. She's got a martini in hand and she's kind of relaying a, some smutty poetry she claims was written about her. But then the music fades out and she bends over holding her head she's obviously in pain the roaring sort of laughter and music is muffled she tries to continue and then she collapses and this is a kind of recreation of uh, her first stroke yes i think the crown are fairly faithfully recreating the beginning of the decline of Princess Margaret, and this was February 1998. She was on holiday in Mustique. She was dining with friends, Samart Weinberg and his wife Anushka and a few others, and uh, she did suffer a minor stroke. 
it did precipitate a new and unwelcome and sad final chapter of her life. And interestingly, that poem that we hear her reciting this sort of undergraduate doggerel, almost uh, sort of lampooning John Betchman. I mean, that poem was actually written by Morris Bower, taking the Michael out of John Betchman's <laughs> infatuation with the princess. And I, I think the words lacquered toes and stick your finger up my nose um, did appear in it. So, uh, yeah, I think so far I'll put that in the file under F for fact. But let's see where it goes next as the credits roll. Well, I'm happy to say the stroke was relatively mild, ma'am. And... Uh, we ought to be able to treat the condition effectively with just an aspirin a day to uh, thin the blood. But uh, to prevent the risk of a second, more serious stroke, you will need to look more closely at your lifestyle. I'm still alive, like some other men do. Well, we've just seen Princess Margaret return from the Caribbean, undergo various scans, and basically gets the news that you've made it through this small stroke, but um, if you don't mend your ways, um, there's another one coming down the track. And so we see the whiskey going down the loo, cigarettes um, being tipped into the bin. I think she says, no more Chesterfields. I have a vague memory. I think she'd already given up smoking by this point. But anyway, um, perhaps um, perhaps not, because uh, after various uh, rehab exercises and stern talking to by various experts, we then see a fairly nimble-footed Margaret trotting down a corridor in pursuit of a long-lost cigarette. She thinks she might be able to find hidden away somewhere, one that's escaped the purge. And she duly does, lights it and throws her head back with joy as she uh, is reunited with the dreaded nicotine. Does the chronology map out, Natasha? You're always very good at plotting the course of these stories. Yeah, so she flew back to Britain on the 25th of February 1998, so a couple of days after the stroke. And you're right, it was initially reported that she had quit smoking after she had part of her lung removed in an operation in 1985. But it was reported that then she did start again after that. So she might have stopped before this particular stroke, but the narrative of her having to stop smoking for health reasons and starting again. There is truth in that. Um, And what is quite interesting is that all the headlines covering her stroke, you know, the press really did blame it on her smoking addiction because it was said that she was a heavy smoker at one point, reportedly smoking 60 cigarettes a day. The Sun said Princess Margaret was hooked on smoking for 40 years and the habit took a devastating toll on her Her health. Her father was a very enthusiastic smoker as well. It's a tragic kind of repeat of history. Um, And yeah, and the Mirror said the same day, Princess Margaret smokes, drinks and swears like a trooper. So... Not great sympathy, really, from a lot of the press. But I think this scene is actually quite comical. I actually enjoyed it, just this idea that even though obviously she's got this sort of quite serious health condition, you get this sense that she had this real sort of zest for life and almost, you know, disgust at these measures she's having to take to kind of have a more sensible lifestyle and, you know, sort of screaming at the staff that she's napping on the sofa and, the, you know, they think she's dead and she's like, I'm still alive. Yeah. Is that kind of a fair representation of her character? I think she was always, you know, the royal rebel, touch of the sort of hellraiser about her and um, I think that comes through here. I'm well, thank you. Of course you are. But I do hope you're taking it easy. I'm fine, Lilibet. Bouncing back on the way up. 
I thought perhaps a gentle stroll, nice siesta, dinner on the terrace, just the two of us. Stroll? Yes. But then I'd like a picnic on the beach with the whole gang, cocktails and dinner, followed by a general bacchanalia at Basil's. You're the boss. I most certainly am. That scene starts with the Queen visiting Margaret and asking if she's okay. And Margaret is looking pretty buoyant. She's insisting she's on the way up, not on the way out. And she's back in the plane, flying over to glamorous-looking Mystique. She's greeted by Anne, who we understand is Lady Anne Glenconner, who is her close friend and whose husband owned Mystique. I think that's right, the island. And her home was gifted to her um, by him. Colin Tennant was, yeah. was her husband, yes. And Anne is suggesting, you know, it might be good for Margaret to have a gentle stroll, maybe a nice but nope, Margaret wants cocktails and parties. But then it all gets a bit horrible. And uh, when I first watched this, I actually had to turn the sound off because it's really horrible to watch. But um, Margaret is kind of in the bath. Um, She's got music playing and she's having difficulty turning off the hot water tap. And you can see from the steam rising, it's clearly scalding water and her feet are in it looking very, very burned. I would think there's too much graphic detail here. We do know Princess Margaret was in Mystique in early 1999 and that she had this accident that resulted in her really very seriously scalding her her feet and her legs and that marked really a new and a point of sort of no return for her health, I think. It was a horrible story at the time and obviously um, the producers of The Crown have thought long and hard about how to depict it. I think we, we, we get a little too much detail here, but we can't fault the fact that this is broadly what happened. Yeah, I mean, timeline-wise, we've jumped ahead a a year. It's a year on from when she had her first stroke, and the date this was first reported was the 24th of March, 1999, and she was on a two-week break. It was actually a month later that the details emerged of kind of how serious the accident was. It first just said she's been treated for burns, um, and then, yeah, it was a month later the details came out that it's been this horrible accident where she collapsed in the bath in scalding water and she was treated on the island and yeah the burns were so bad it affected her mobility and she was later restricted to a wheelchair. One thing worth remembering is that no one was in the room with Margaret when this terrible accident happened. We don't know if it was brought on by a stroke I think those who were in Mustique at the time, family and and friends and people like um, Lady Glenconner, Anne Glenconner, her lady-in-waiting and friend, who's depicted in this scene, they all say that it was was an accident involving, I think, the the hot tap that is what um, caused a sort of shock. Uh, The details remain sketchy. We don't know, though, if there was another stroke, but what we are about to see is um, a very, very much enfeebled Margaret coming to see her sister. Why not try some gentle exercise? You could use the palace pool. I'd rather die than do exercise. Seeing as I'm going to be dead soon anyway, I thought I might as well go out with a bang. It's my 70th birthday. Um, I've decided I want to celebrate it with a nice big party at the Ritz. Because we love the Ritz. Don't we, Lilibert? Do we? We have such special memories. 
just a little note on the scene we've just watched, which shows Margaret um, arriving back to see the Queen after her terrible accident. They kind of have a conversation about what's happened to her. The Queen makes a few suggestions, uh, maybe some exercise. Um, Margaret says she'd rather die than do any of that, um, and that she would like to go out with a bang um, for her big birthday party to celebrate her 70th. And I think it's just worth noting a few points. The outfit she is wearing, uh, we see her wearing kind of dark glasses and a sort of chiffon scarf. That is recreating an outfit that Margaret did wear, but from 2001, whereas Margaret had her accident with burning her feet in 1999. So kind of jumping around with the timelines here. Um, And also Princess Margaret celebrated her 70th in the year 2000. So again, the the dates here are a bit, yeah. (laughs) Well, yes, I mean, I think what they've taken there is quite a celebrated image of a very frail Princess Margaret wearing these huge wraparound sunglasses, which, as you say, Natasha, that's something we saw in 2001. We're sort of two years before that in the crowd. As ever, they're sort of jumping around a bit with the timings, as you say. But what this is setting up is the idea that Margaret wants to go back to the Ritz. And again, she's sort of teasing the Queen about this sort of dark, guilty secret. And you can see the Queen thinking, oh, no, not the Ritz. And Margaret sort of intimating that, yes, we're going to go there. And we all know there's a story there, don't we, Lilibet? And the Queen doesn't want to know about this. It's sort of moving the storyline on rather than, uh, I think, chronicling precisely the descent of Princess Margaret. I mean, at, at this point, yes, she was in a wheelchair some of the time. Quite a lot of the time, she was up and about. So let's see. I think we might be about to flash back to the war again. going to do, then you're going to have to bet your island system. Um, I'm going to put this in the cloak room. Oh, let me escort you. No need. Excuse me, ma'am. Sorry. Wait. Don't go up there. <laughs> Come with us. Way more fun. <laughs> well, there we see the two princesses fighting their way through the crowds. It's mayhem in central London. They arrive at the Ritz. They go into um, the hotel where there's a fairly staid celebration going on upstairs with a big band, people dancing, and uh, it's all still rather wonderful after so many long years of war. They both grab a cocktail, and then Princess Elizabeth pops down to the cloakroom to hand in her jacket. Um, I don't think she would have done that for one minute. She was always very meticulous about being properly dressed, and uh, princesses would not... um, embark on an evening at the Ritz in shirt sleeves. But anyway, that's what she does. While she's there, she bumps into a black American officer who is saying, well, you don't want to go up there. You want to come down here. That's where the party is. And she's intrigued. And so she heads for this uh, underground party, which at this point we don't actually see, and bumps into a very sniffy uh, English officer coming up saying, oh, you don't want to go down there. Americans, um, they're, they're dancing the jitterbug. No wonder they banned it. It comes from Harlem, a ghetto. I mean, it's the crown chucking in 
all sorts of issues, wartime issues, post-war issues, contemporary issues to do with race, segregation. I think the idea that there was some sort of underground party going on beneath the Ritz is simply just laughable. And as it happens, I've done a little bit of looking around, but I, I think overall the general view was that Britain was a far more tolerant place for black American servicemen than they found back home. Uh, there wasn't segregation in Britain in the way that there was in, in the US. Um, and as for the jitterbug, uh, everyone was doing it and loving it, I think. So it wasn't banned? It wasn't banned at all. You couldn't get enough of it. I think they were even doing jitterbug competitions as far away as Australia at this point. Wow. Obviously, I've, I've never done the jitterbug and before watching this, I had no idea what it was, so... <laughs> Maybe I'll have a comeback. I'm not entirely sure what it is. It's a pretty wild form of dancing. Um, Whatever it was, I don't think it's what the princesses were doing on the night of VE Day. But let's see where this goes. You need a hand, man. No, I'm all right. Thank you all for coming this evening. As you know, I've spent much of my time recently lying in hospital beds, staring out of windows at that little patch of blue that prisoners call the sky. (laughs) But throughout it all sustain me memories. As it turns out, I have rather fond memories of quite a few evenings at the Ritz (laughs) that I'd like to share with you. One in particular comes to mind when a very different side of the young Princess Elizabeth was revealed. We're back at the Ritz, but it's no longer 1945. It's the year 2000, and it's Margaret's 70th birthday party. We've seen uh, the Queen speaking to Philip, who, for some inexplicable reason, cannot attend. He says he's setting off somewhere. We don't know where. Um, And the Queen starts talking about Porchy, who she says never lets one down, but admits that she's worrying about Margaret. And then we see Princess Margaret kind of continuing her determination to be glamorous, even when she's clearly unwell. We see her sort of ramming over very burnt and swollen foot into a pair of heels. And then when we get to the Ritz, she again is clearly in pain, but she walks unaided into the venue. And then she begins a speech, again, this theme where she starts to recall what happened on that night on VE Day. But the Queen stops her and gives actually quite a poignant speech about how Margaret is always very dutiful, her sort of constant companion. And then afterwards, uh, they have a phone call where they sort of touchingly go over Um, the speech. Robert, what did you make of all this? Well, we know that, in fact, Margaret did have a 70th birthday party at the Ritz. It was quite a big year, 2000, on her actual birthday up at Balmoral in August, a sort of family picnic. But there was a big joint party at Windsor earlier in the summer, marking both the Queen Mother's 100th, Margaret's 70th, Princess Anne's 50th, Prince Andrew's 40th. So it was a big round figure celebration. And uh, we know that, yes, Margaret did arrive at that on foot, not in a wheelchair. Again, we have the sort of constant reminder, the sort of teasing of Lilibet. You know, Margaret's got this really naughty story and she's determined to get it out. The Queen's absolutely terrified somebody's going to find out whatever it was, which I'm no doubt 
that we're, we're, we're going to um, reach fairly shortly towards the end of this episode. But it, it is a sweet scene in that it underlines the tenderness between the two of them, the fact that, you know, all the way through, the Queen did regard Margaret as an ally. And there is a rather sweet little story as well when the Queen talks about Margaret as a little girl blaming anything and everything that goes wrong or any naughtiness on, on this imaginary figure called Cousin Halifax. We know, thanks to the the, the, the governess, uh, Cynthia Crawford, Crawfy, uh, that Margaret did indeed have an imaginary friend called Cousin Halifax, who was indeed um, blamed for all sorts of misdemeanours. So um, that's a nice little sort of throwback to what really happened. But one gets a sense that for all the, the sparkle, all Margaret's uh, joie de vivre, that she's still trying to show the outside world that things are about to take a turn for the worse. There's a lot that they get right in this scene, as you say, the details and the articles at the time saying that the Queen, for example, was wearing a pink dress um, with beautiful diamonds. And yes, Margaret walked confidently and aided at the steps. But the, again, this storyline about we don't know why Prince Philip not attending, I don't know if it's to emphasise the closeness between the Queen and Princess Margaret um, or potentially her relationship with Porchy. Prince Philip did attend. Porchy being night. Lord Porchester, who yes. the, the, uh, the nickname for the then Earl of Carnarvon. Yes, and in earlier series of The Crown, they explore his relationship with the Queen in a way that was quite controversial, kind of suggesting there may have been more than a friendship there. Um, so maybe this imagination that Philip was not there on this night is to lend weight to these other relationships. But I just thought that was a bit of an odd thing to make up for no reason. Because Prince Philip was there. Yeah, he was there. In the article, as it says, that um, there was a gasp of admiration when the Queen arrived and she was accompanied by Prince Philip. So fact or fiction, that little tidbit is definitely fiction. More fact or fiction coming up after the break. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. <laughs> Hello, you. Goodbye, you. Stop it. We'll have you up and out of here in no time. No. No, what is deserting me one limb at a time? Such terrible news about Lord Carnarvon. Bought you. Why? What's happened? 
He collapsed while he was watching the news. Heart attack. We've just watched quite a difficult scene where Margaret has another stroke. Uh, This one seems pretty debilitating. She uh, gets out of bed. We have a close-up of a very swollen foot, um, which, you know, is just very uncomfortable to see. And she collapses onto the floor. We later see she is in hospital and visited by the Queen. And we see Margaret saying, you know, she thinks it's serious this time. She can't feel or see anything. And, you know, visibly she looks much more frightened than we've seen um, before. Um, and, and just to note, this scene is quite poignant anyway, um, but Leslie Manville, who plays uh, Princess Margaret, said in an interview with the New York Times that the day they filmed this scene on her hospital bed is the day that the Queen herself actually died. And they were briefed that morning that the Queen may well pass today. And they said that they wanted to continue filming the scene. And they wrapped up at 4pm, which is around the time that the Queen herself died. So mm. uh, it maybe adds to, you know, it really is a powerful scene that. And then we move on. Margaret is recovering. She's sitting in a wheelchair watching the news. And it's 9-11-2001. Um, she's hearing the tragic news um, of the planes crashing into the Twin Towers. And then later she's in the park and speaking with Lady Anne. They talk about the tragedy of the crash, but also about what happened to their close friend, didn't they, Robert? That's right. Um, By this stage, it's true. Um, Late 2001, um, Princess Margaret was having great trouble seeing things. She couldn't really read. And and one thing that Anglin Connor did do a lot with her is to sit there and read. And you've got her reading out a rather harrowing account from the 9-11 terrorist attacks. And then, uh, as you say, um, she mentions that Porchy has died. And we cut to the Queen and Margaret having this conversation. And Margaret sort of saying, well, all the people who are devoted to you are going. Porchy and now me and soon mummy. And the Queen sort of winces and says, don't be so silly. But I remember this was a very stressful time for the Queen because... Princess Margaret, as we know, yes, she really was very ill. The Queen Mother was extremely frail, and she did lose her great lifelong friend, Porchy, otherwise by this point the Earl of Carnarvon, uh, who did indeed die on the same day, on 9-11, the 11th of September 2001. And so one can feel the sort of the stresses and strains that are piling up on, on the Queen, and then there's this a happy, sweet, sad moment as Margaret starts ticking off her various demands for her funeral service. So I think, you know, we can well understand that we are in the home straits, as it were, and Margaret does not have very long to go at this point. Is this silly? No, it's wonderful. Go on. What are you doing in London? I asked. Oh, buzzing round. We're just up for the day. Flying visit, strictly unofficial. We oil back on the 310. (laughs) We oil back on the 310. (laughs) And now, touching on that lunch you very decently volunteered to stand us, which shall it be? Ritz, Savoy, Carlton? Ritz, please. Because we love the Ritz, don't we? Honestly. You and the Ritz? No. You and the Ritz? If people don't know about that night, they'll never fully understand. Mm. How irresponsible I was. The scale of the sacrifice you've made. Well, we've just seen a very sweet moment, really, where you've got um, the Queen um, lying on Margaret's bed and reading to her, reading a story and 
it's a reminder of just how close these two sisters were, and they really were. As ever, Margaret can't resist talking about this night at the Ritz, this extraordinary night at the Ritz with this cryptic, dark, extraordinary story that reveals the true Elizabeth. I'm on tender hooks. I'm sure viewers around the world are. So perhaps we can finally find out how is this um, extraordinary night of um, seeming depravity about to unfold? We last saw the princess was heading down the stairs to the basement of the Ritz, where there was clearly some sort of very different party going on. And now I think we're going to see how it unfolds. You two haven't seen Elizabeth, have you? Stop worrying about her. She never does anything irresponsible. She's been a long time. I'm going to look for her. I'll come with you, Porchy. So there we have it. We've just found out that what was at the bottom of those stairs leading down to this club at the bottom of the Ritz was, yes, a raucous nightclub with fabulous jive dancing. They're doing, yeah, the jitterbug. Um, We see uh, enthusiastic dancers flinging each other around. It all looks quite acrobatic. I'm not sure I'd want to give it a go. And yes, the Queen goes down. She meets this flash American GI uh, who encourages her in. Uh, There's a raucous jazz band uh, playing this song, It Ain't My Fault. Um, And then we see... uh, kind of stage ballroom upstairs and um, Porchy, Margaret and Peter Townsend decide to go look for Elizabeth where they find her enthusiastically dancing that sinful uh, jive um, that we heard about earlier on in the episode and then Margaret takes a swig from a hip flask and joins in and we see them hugging together and it, it's clearly a sort of very poignant moment for the two sisters. Um, They're really bonding here and we're seeing Elizabeth in a totally new light. They then walk back along the mall. It's sort of dawn and the Queen is chewing gum, which she says that she thinks came after a kiss. What did you make of this, Robert? After all that, I mean, it looks like the Queen let her hair turn on VE Day, like I imagine almost everybody of her age all over the country. I'm not sure this was quite such a terrible secret that she felt compelled to bury it for the rest of her life. I have to say, to me, it looked like the, the two princesses had just wandered into an episode of Strictly Come Dancing. Again, it's the producers of The Crown envisaging VE Day night as they would like it to have been. So there are women saxophonists. It's entirely multiracial. There are sort of people in vests dancing around, men dancing with men. I mean, you know, yeah, sure. Absolutely entirely certain that that was not going on in the basement of the Ritz. But never mind, it depicts that sense of escapism that I think everybody felt on the night. Let's not forget, you know, it was at that point, um, the, the, as the Queen herself said many years later, it was one of the most memorable nights of of her life, there was that sense of just utter relief. The war is over. You can finally turn the lights on at night. Let's not forget how unusual that was. You can just walk the streets without worrying about you whether you're going to be bombed. And I went back through my um, book, actually, because I wanted to remind myself of, of what we really know about
about that night. And it was extraordinary. And the Queen herself, she kept a diary all her life. And she allowed her cousin, Margaret Rhodes, to look at her diary entry for that night because Margaret Rhodes wrote her own memoirs and the Queen let her quote from Princess Elizabeth's own hand and this is what she herself had to say about it at the time. PM announced unconditional surrender, that's Winston Churchill obviously. Sixteen of us went out in crowd, cheered parents on balcony, up St James's Street, Piccadilly, great fun. And then it goes out in the crowd again, so they were going in and out of the, the palace, walked miles, saw parents on balcony at 12 30 a.m. Eight partied bed 3 a.m. Other accounts of that, one of her ladies-in-waiting talked about uh, similar memories. What they all did do was they went into the Ritz, they did the conga through the Ritz. I think it was one of the ladies-in-waiting, Jean Woodruff's later said that, you know, some of the more elderly guests at the Ritz were astonished to see the young come congering through the door, through the ballroom and out the other side. So there was a conga, there was certainly, you know, some drinks. It probably was utterly extraordinary by the standard of the day, but I don't really think that the Queen has um, done anything to be ashamed of. If having a kiss and maybe chewing some gum is as bad as it gets, I'm not quite sure why she's um, so determined that this should be wrapped up like some official state secret. Uh, But as you say, Natasha, underlying it all is that the connection there between the two sisters, and I I think we're about to have a very, very poignant end to this episode. Yeah, I actually love this scene. And I have to say, even though it's mostly fiction, I think it's worth it. I just love the idea that, yes, you may have had a great night, but I don't know, I just think it's a great fun scene. And, you know, if she had done something really naughty, then she probably wouldn't have written it in her diary that, you know, later people (laughs) would have read. So I don't know, I actually just, I just really enjoyed this, throwing fact or fiction out the window. But that being said, just two points which are interesting. So the pink sink did exist and was a secret gay bar in the Ritz um, but not I don't think in 1945 and as you say I don't think the Queen ever went there um, but that is not a total fabrication um, and the song that they're playing It Ain't My Fault um, that was a real song written by an American artist Smokey Johnson but it didn't actually come out till 1964 so not quite right but um, I, I actually really like that scene Good I didn't know well done you for doing the pink sinking system I don't know <laughs> Look The sun is rising. What will this future hold? Aren't you coming? We can join Mummy and Papa for breakfast. I'm afraid not. But I will always be by your side. No matter what. Finally, the two princesses have reached the palace gates, the gates open, they're going back into their royal world, they've had their escape from the gilded cage for a night, and VE Day is over. And then this sweet moment as Princess Elizabeth says, well, should we go and have breakfast with mummy and daddy? 
And then suddenly, of course, this being this series of The Crown, we've got to get a bit of ghost action in. And suddenly there is 71-year-old Princess Margaret saying to her very much younger 20-year-old sister, I'm going now. It's a way of um, signing off so that we're not going to see Princess Margaret's funeral. It then cuts to uh, credits explaining that she did die peacefully in her sleep on the 9th of February 2000. And two, I think it's a sweet way of rounding up this episode. I mean, I think it's, of all the episodes in this series, for the most part, I I have enjoyed a lot of this one. How did you feel about it, Natasha? Yeah, this was my favourite episode, just because I think that a lot of the fabrications that were made, like a potentially wild night in the Ritz, I don't think that's deeply offensive and I think it's actually quite fun and and in comparison to the kind of ghostly scenes we had previously with Diana I thought that this one with Princess Elizabeth and Princess Margaret actually really worked because obviously that would never have happened and I just think it's a it was just a really sweet way to signify Margaret leaving the Queen and how close the two of them were. For all her faults, Princess Margaret was always utterly loyal to her sister. It was a very close bond. And I thought, I remember covering her funeral. It was extraordinary because she broke with royal tradition by insisting on being cremated. Normally, up until that point, minor members of the family, those not in direct line of succession, would be buried in the royal burial ground at Frogmore out on the Windsor estate. And Margaret had decided she didn't want that. She wanted to spend eternity with her parents and her sister, which is a very sweet thought. But the crypt underneath the George VI Memorial Chapel at Windsor is very small. There was only room for George VI, the Queen Mother, uh, the Queen and Prince Philip in due course. Obviously, they wouldn't be interred there for many years to come. So Margaret couldn't be buried there. So she'd elected to be cremated because that way her ashes, at least, um, could go into uh, the same space as her parents and her beloved sister. That was sort of very much, I think, underlined her lifelong devotion to the family and and it was an extraordinary sight. I remember standing outside Slough Crematorium on a rainy freezing afternoon and there was a procession of cars going in and out ordinary members of the public going in for their cremations coming out and suddenly a royal limousine went in with a royal coffin with the royal standard and Princess Margaret without any great fanfare was cremated and then interred in a very private ceremony later. Unique but then Margaret I think was unique. She was a one-off and it was a very unusual but very her departure. Yeah, she's portrayed throughout as very stoical, always remaining a good sense of humour. Do you think that that is a fair portrayal? Yeah, I mean, she could, uh, you know, there are legendary stories about um, her being difficult in umpteen regards, whether it's as a guest or, you know, royal events. Our colleague Craig Brown wrote a, a pretty coruscating book on her life. But Through it all, I think the Queen always had at the back of her mind this sense, and it's touched on in this episode, that life is hard for those who are born as number two. It underlined why all through her life she always had that extra sympathy for Prince Andrew, why in later life she had that extra sympathy for Prince Harry, because she was always conscious of it's all very well for all the great things to be heaped on the firstborn and all the prestige and the responsibilities that go with that. But actually, if you are destined to just be a sort of supporting act, it can be difficult for all the privileges, all the treasures. And I think she often felt that, you know, Margaret 
never fulfilled her potential. I think right to the end, a lot of people felt, you know, she was very artistic. She was very musical. She could have done a lot of things had she not been royal. And her sister, right to the end, adored her. And that point we just saw there, you know, them saying farewell, that's going to be followed very shortly afterwards by the death of the Queen Mother. You know, 2002, I think, is one of the pivotal years of the Queen's reign, the year when she lost two of those absolutely closest to her. And yet, as we're doubtless going to see in the next episode, a sense of renewal. It's probably worth just saying that those details that we see at the end of this episode of the facts of uh, Princess Margaret's death, that she died in her sleep peacefully at 6.30am on the 9th of February 2002, that is all correct. Crown fact. There we go. Good way to end. Well, thank you very much for joining us for another episode of The Crown, Fact or Fiction. Once again, we'd like to thank you for your kind comments and messages, and we'd like to share a comment or two that's been left by our kind listeners. Uh, yeah, we've we've had some lovely comments, actually, from all over the world. It's, it's very nice to know that we're being uh, listened to far and wide. For example, this one, fantastically informative. This is a great listen. That's from Kim in New Zealand. Kim, thank you. Thanks to all our listeners in New Zealand, in fact. So, uh, big shout out to all the Kiwis. We've also got some lovely listeners in America. Um, we've got a wonderful comment from Margot who said, wonderful podcast. If you love Diana and the royal family, this podcast podcast is a must. It's not only entertaining, but the hosts and their guests tell you what really happened and correct all the inaccuracies in The Crown. We try our best, Margot. Thank you very much. She says, if you like hearing the inside scoop, you definitely need to listen. Thank you very much, Margot. Well, if you have enjoyed listening, and if you haven't already, please do give us a five-star rating and a follow. And if you leave us a comment uh, or a review, we will do our best to read it out on the next episode. And finally, if you'd like to send us a WhatsApp message, do take a look in the show notes underneath this podcast um, for our number. But for now, thanks so much for listening to The Crown, Fact or Fiction. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
Goodbye. Goodbye. Our hit series, Everything I Know About Me, is back for a brand new season. And this time, our guest needs no introduction. One anyway. Hi, I'm Gemma Collins, and this is everything I know about me. If you think you know all about Gemma Collins, think again, because this is the GC as you've never heard her before. It's been exhausting. And ashamed. And I was really heartbroken because I was pregnant and he was having an affair. Unfiltered. I have had an operation as well years ago. I have a designer vagina. Yeah, baby. I don't have camel toe. Unbelievable. And then they advised me, you need to have a termination. And, uh, yeah, I remember that being really stressful. Everything I Know About Me with Gemma Collins is out this Thursday wherever you get your podcasts.